Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true stories. I'm Karen, one of your hosts today, and it feels so good to be back. And I'm Rebecca, also one of your hosts today. We missed you all. We are so excited to return after our break to bring you even more stories from a wide array of talented young authors. And I'm Sadie. Yes, it's been about a year and a half since you've heard from us. And as you all know, so much has changed in the world in that time. The COVID-19 pandemic has hit the world hard and we hope that you all are continuing to be safe, getting tested and doing your part to keep this under control. I'm Riley, another one of your returning hosts today. The way we are doing our part is by doing the podcast virtually over Zoom for the first time. So the audio might be a bit different from what you're used to as we're not in our usual studio, but the stories are just as impactful as always. We look forward to sharing all the stories we've come across during this time away. I'm Leisha. As a new addition to the Life Out Loud family, I'm very excited to virtually be here. And I'm Evelyn. Thank you for joining us on this comeback episode entitled Someone Like Me. In this episode, two authors explore how stigma surrounding parts of their identities affects their worldview. It's been long enough, so without further delay, let's get back into these stories. This story is by an author named R.J. Calamito. Raymond Joseph R.J. Calamito is a senior at John Jay College, double majoring in English and forensic psychology. He was born and raised in Staten Island, New York, where he enjoys reading, writing, and is a diehard sports fan of the New York Yankees in baseball, the Knicks in basketball, and the New York Giants in football, and the Rangers in hockey. He plans on becoming an English teacher or journalist, whether it be politics, business, or sports. Fun fact, he is also training to become a professional wrestler with the debut soon approaching. Let's take a listen to RJ's story entitled 7,000 Plus Days. You know, I always feel like I have to disclose to people right away that I'm autistic, like it's some type of initiation. So, here it is, full disclosure. I'm RJ Calamito, and I am autistic. My parents found out I was autistic when I was two. My mom says I was a mess back then, even more of a mess than most toddlers. I looked like a bald cabbage patch doll on the Toys R Us shelf. If that baby was uncontrollably banging his own head and smearing himself with poop in order to communicate. Imagine a kid having to point at the kitchen cabinet or the cookie jar or the refrigerator because he couldn't say, Mommy, I'm hungry. Imagine him restrained by therapists, the ones that to this day at 21 years old, I can still remember saying, Restrain him, him and his temper's out of control. The worst part of all of it, though, they were right. It seemed like no one could help me. Not even Lisa in the yellow Volkswagen Beetle or Barbara, my speech therapist, the one with her own nonverbal son about my age. Imagine your parents genuinely being unable to help you because they didn't understand what was going on, no matter how hard they tried. The first temper tantrum I clearly remember throwing at school was in the second grade. I sat at one of those rectangular cafeteria tables, knowing that the lunch aide, or whatever her title was, was going to take my food if I didn't finish it quickly enough. It didn't help that the lunch aide in my school looked like a white wicked witch of the west. Blonde hair, wrinkles, and nails so long they made Cardi B's or Falcon's talents, take your pick, look short by comparison. I knew that she'd take it because of my paranoia told me so. Besides, she had done it to someone else on one particular occasion. That day, and a few other days too, 
In front of everyone, my face turned apple red. I stood up and started screaming at the top of my lungs for everyone to keep quiet. Heck, at least I didn't throw a lunch tray at the first kid to talk. I did that later, though, both in the 7th and 8th grade. You see, people and kids with autism are prone to difficulties with social interactions and communications. The DSM-5 criteria for the disorder states that those with the disorder experience persistent deficits in social communication and social interaction across multiple contexts, as manifested by the following, currently or by history. Deficits in social-emotional reciprocation, ranging, for example, from abnormal social approach and failure of normal back-and-forth conversation, to reduced sharing of interests, emotions, or affect, to failure to initiate or respond to social interactions. Deficit in nonverbal communicative behaviors used for social interaction, ranging, for example, from poorly integrated and nonverbal communications, to abnormalities in eye contact and body language deficits in understanding and use of gestures, to a total lack of facial expressions and nonverbal communication, Deficits in developing, maintaining, and understanding relationships, ranging, for example, from difficulties of adjusting behavior to suit various across social contexts, to difficulty in sharing imaginative play or in making friends, to the absence of interest in peers. What all of this scientific yada yada is supposed to tell you is that the normal friend interactions you have when you take the tram on a beautiful day to Roosevelt Island, or when you simply raise your hand in class, or when you're trying to go out for a wild nightclub, or even when you're simply trying to excuse yourself to head to the bathroom, all become difficult, or in some cases, due to the sensory issues, downright impossible. In seventh grade, my math teacher, Mrs. Dem, the one with the dark lipstick and short bobbed hair, would stare at me hard when I raised my hand. I was only trying to participate, what was wrong with knowing all the answers? Should I have pretended not to know them? Every time she asked something, I knew the answer. So I raised my hand. In front of everyone one day, she told me to sit on my hands. So I did. I was embarrassed, but at least I still knew all the answers. People can be mean, and they certainly don't get nicer when you're different than them. No matter how many improvements you make or how much you learn to fit in with social norms. Or how proud your mom is that you can now finally talk, walk, and do normal kid things. It seemed like it was never enough for other kids. I used to sit with my Yorkie, Gigi, and I used to cry into her soft brown, black, and silver fur, shrieking one question, one word. Why? Why? It always seems like that dog understood me more than most people do nowadays. I hope things would be better as an adult. When I got to college, I thought things would be better. In some ways they are, but small things affect me. Things that are hard for me to communicate to those around me. My peers, my professors, everyone. For example, I'm an English major and I love to read, right? But holding physical novels feels like screeching nails on a chalkboard to me. Every page I turn runs goosebumps through my body. I can feel it now just talking about it. The commute isn't easy either. By the time I arrive in class, I'm frazzled by the sounds of a 59th Street Columbus Circle train station, especially if I'm in there when the express trains charge by its rails roaring louder than a lion in a National Geographic special. <sighs> but the hardest part is, maybe, how I feel like people just don't understand. The thing is, I don't look autistic. So, all the time, people make ableist remarks around me. Shake it off, you're fine, they say, when I feel like things are too loud, or when I'm upset at the way people talk to me in conversation, or even when I once literally cut myself at 19. Granted, I don't do that anymore, but I wondered how the crimson would feel pouring out of my hands at the time, and wondered how I feel. The simple answer is, not really all that good. 
in short, I learned that often it's easiest just to stay at home. In my home, I can control my frustration and anxiety. And I don't have to deal with 90 minutes of people pushing and shoving on crowded New York City subway trains or worry about flipping out on my friend over a disagreement we have in the creative writing club. At home, the commute to class isn't draining. It doesn't overload me. At home, I can listen to You're Beautiful by James Blunt, what my mom used to sing to me as a child, over and over and not worry about anyone seeing me huddled and crying in the college building staircase. At home, I'm free to be me, but it can be lonely, and it can be boring. And now, maybe the world knows a little bit about what I mean. When COVID hit, people finally now understood what it meant to be caged to your home, to your bedroom, to be in quarantine. Quarantine has been a few short months for a lot of people, and I know it's a struggle for them. But imagine that sort of struggle at home, within your own self even, for 7,000 plus days of your life. Wow. How great. Wow. Oh. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for having me. Of course. Yeah. That was such a great story to, to start off with, huh, guys? So. When we're reading and listening to this piece, it can feel like flipping through pages of a diary, quick slices of your life that paint just how difficult it is to live in a world where you're perceived as different. Was the choice to make your story move at this pace purposeful? See, that's an actual interesting question because I'm going to be completely honest. I'm not entirely sure how to answer that off the top, but if I had to take a guess, I'd say, yeah, the whole sort of stop and start structure to this story is meant to sort of relate to how my thought process is a bit different than everybody else's mm -hmm. and sort of the way each paragraph is different, right? Like sort of some paragraphs are a lot shorter than others. It's not consistent in the way like I perceive neurotypical people to mm -hmm. like would write a story like this, right? Like if an NT person would write a story about themselves, the paragraphs would be a lot more consistent in length. Yeah, that's not the case. Um, wow, yeah, that's really, really interesting. Um, first of all, I hope that everybody can hear this pretty well. We're all recording on Zoom right now. We can see each other, but uh, we wish we could see you all as well. So I hope that you can hear this pretty good because we don't want you to miss any of this amazing interview. Yeah, so let's hope you all get this next question. All right. so. RJ, towards the end of your story, you mentioned how you don't look disabled, so ableist people tend to make insensitive remarks around you. And how does this affect you? Would you say that this form of passing is ultimately detrimental? And what do you want people who never approach others with consideration that they might be different from themselves to take away from this line? Well, I think there's two sides to that. One of which is the self side of it, and one of which is sort of the other side. So in terms of how it affects myself, like if you've ever seen like pictures of me, which you probably haven't because hello. But if you if for me, like taking of like just a simple picture is a lot harder because I feel I look a way that I fundamentally don't. So it can be a little bit detrimental to my self-esteem. But on the other hand, there's an other end to that, that people don't realize just how much words can harm your looks, right? In terms... So in terms of how others perceive me, it's not so much about me, right? There are people out there who have more severe experiences with autism and with other disabilities than I do. And my job here is to sort of protect them. The mm. end of this story is more of a PSA for both other people with autism and for the people that criticize them as mm. it is, let's say, a reflection of myself. 
So I'd rather, if I want anybody to take anything from this, it's that you shouldn't criticize other people for what you don't see as much as you shouldn't criticize them for what you do see. Right. We see that a lot in modern rhetoric. Like, for example, with race relations and with gender relations, these are things you can quote-unquote see, right? But me being autistic, you can't see that. But in both scenarios, you shouldn't be judging people based on what you see. You also shouldn't be judging them based on what you don't see. Wow. Okay. Beautifully said. Yeah. yeah and there's also, there's a bunch of very cool, like, aspects of your story and how you choose to write it. So you have this moment in your story where you give the exact DSM-5 criteria autism and then also translate it like almost translate it by saying what all this scientific yada yada is supposed to tell you is that the normal friend interactions you have and you mentioned the tram raising your hand uh going to a nightclub all become difficult or in some cases due to sensory issues downright impossible and with mental health um there is sometimes a line being walked on needing to be met with consideration for that part of you and you know understood but of course knowing that sometimes people overdo it and see you almost exclusively as this definition of your diagnosis and you can feel palpably when people are acting different of you um, with you for that so can you talk about how you experience that in between in your everyday life of like see me but please don't see me too much or think that you're seeing me, think you're understanding me. So literally halfway through that question, I knew exactly how I was going to answer it. So there is a, there's, I think that line is a lot less fine as we think it is, right? Mm. Because like you get to a point where it's just like autism or just about any other mental health, uh, condition is um, what's we call it, a spectrum. Right. So is the idea of do you need somebody to help you on every single day basis? Right. Right. Like the the line between I can do this myself and I need help should be a line that the self that the self the person themselves should be able to define. Right. Right. Like we see this in every single context in today's society from the state thinking oh let's put people in mental institutions or psychi psychiatric wards where they think that they have control over a person's autonomy and especially when we live in a world where a person's health and well-being is so fundamentally tied both to their mental health and their physical autonomy we live in a world where two freaking many people from meandering politicians to the next person you see on the street think, oh, we need to help that person. That's a question that has to come from within that person. Yes, people can't see, but I'm clapping right now because that is just so true because everyone, sometimes people think, oh, I'm seeing you and the way that I'm proving that I see you, the way that I'm proving that I care is by making all these assumptions, not giving you any autonomy and not letting you decide for yourself and explain yourself, communicate yourself, how you want to be helped, if at all, you know? I feel like with mental health, there's such a, an urgency to, to respond or to, um, what I mean by respond is to, to offer help or advice, you know, but not everybody is wanting that, you know, sometimes I just want the connection with you. I just want to talk to you or someone to listen to. And it's not always, we don't always need that automatic, let me help you. You need help. Yeah, like kind of like knowing when to let your friend or someone know that you're there for them without putting yourself there, without their permission. It's like, it's like, yeah, like, yeah. Being there for somebody doesn't preclude that you make decisions for that person. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And um, RJ, you might have already touched on this a little bit, but what would you want your listeners to take away from this story? 
Well, if there's anything I want you to take away is that I is that I sweep with a BB-8 though because I'm lonely. No, I'm kidding. But in all seriousness, I want you to take away what well, or any of my listeners, right? I want you guys to take away two things. One, that sometimes your experiences, no matter who you are, right, are not are so intertwined with like who you are. So it doesn't have to necessarily be autism, right? It could be race, it could be gender, it could be sexual orientation, it could be ethnicity. But who you are is both defined by that, but you define what that means to you. And what I mean by that is, let's use me as the example. Autism is a part of me. It is not me, right? And I think that very point is important. We sit here and we automatically make this assumption that, oh, wait, for me, for example, I'm a fourth-year English major. And I'm a fourth-year psycho- forensic psychology major here at John Jay. And people make this assumption that, oh, my life is perfect. Or for any number of reasons, right, for whether it's just how I look. And going back to sort of the question about how I look and how that affects, people think that because I don't look this disabled, that everything is fine. But just because somebody doesn't look disabled doesn't mean that they aren't. And it also doesn't mean that you have the right to say that about them, right? So for me, autism, like I said, is part of me. Just as anything else would be a part of somebody. And that's what I think people, that's the first thing I think people should take from that. The other thing I should take, and I think people should take, we live in a society where basically my audience here wasn't so much college students as it was children and young adults, right? Children are our future, they say. And we live in a world where children and young adults are increasingly more interconnected, whether it's through social media, whether it's through, you know, everybody, just about everybody having a cell phone these days. And with everything from bullying to cyberbullying, rampant, I want you to keep in mind that your words can hurt regardless of whether you're here or like me, I can't see you guys and you can't see me, but the words that we speak to one another can hurt no matter who we are talking to, whether they're the biggest stranger or they're your best friend. And I hope that maybe I shine a light on something that most charities Take even for granted. We hear the slogan all the time, autism speaks, write it up with. Guess what? Most autistic people can't freaking stand autism speaks. Guess why? Newsflash. Maybe you should get your knowledge right, or maybe you should be able. Most people can't stand autism speaks. Most people are tired of psychiatric institutions. Most people are tired of hearing the words Bailey Seaton Hospital in Manhattan. Seriously, I mean, if you, I mean, if you were being told you were going to get sent to some gothic cathedral-looking building in the middle of freaking nowhere, how would you take that, right? But my point there at the end of the day is that we're all people, right? And walking somebody to a psychiatric institution is the same as walking a regular person to prison. Yeah, it's imprisoning. Now, would you, would you see? Would you like to be in prison? I don't think so. I mean, people with disabilities shouldn't be forced to be secluded from society because of some preconceived notion. Absolutely. Some, some idea, right? Some idea that we're different. There's, yeah. Yes, there's actually, in both contexts of that, literally society likes to separate us and I think this it, this isn't a conversation that's just limited to autism. Right. We're living in a country where racial relations are an increasingly, if not ever, more omnipresent factor of our, you know, American society. And this is a common topic of racial injustice, in gender injustice that we feel se- that they feel separate. This isn't an autism thing; it's a human thing. And Absolutely. 
And on that note, thank you so much for coming to us and letting us share the story of yours and for those powerful last words as it's a human thing, you know? Thank you for that. This next piece is by an author named Francesca. Francesca is a senior at John Jay College, majoring in English with a minor in criminology. She was born in Massachusetts, but raised in Brooklyn practically all her life. With plans to become an advocate for social justice, she is passionate about criminal justice reform, often volunteering with the American Civil Liberties Union, ACLU. During her free time, she enjoys singing, reading psychological thrillers, and writing romance novelas. Let's take a listen to this piece entitled, A Girl Like Me. Lawrence and I slowly became closer friends junior year, and I hoped he never learned how hard I had to work to make that happen. My plan started at the end of our sophomore year when I witnessed one of our psycho gym teachers, Mr. Padley, smack a candy bar out of Lawrence's hand. Mr. Padley was also the school soccer coach, and he was very strict about the foods his players consumed. He had a strict, no-junk-food policy, even beyond the soccer season. So, when our school was doing candy grams last April, I sent Lawrence the biggest candy bag they offered along with a note to replace the candy that Presty murdered. Although I was not a fan of soccer, over the summer I did a lot of research and I had a sudden burst of school spirit for the season. I made sure to attend as many games as possible. A beautiful coincidence also revealed that Lawrence often hung out at Roland Roasters. So I eventually ate every item on the menu as I took up my monthly reading over there, hoping we'd bump into each other. God was finally working with me because all of that effort led up smoothly to the group project. Lawrence was smart, like overall 97 GPA smart, and he used above average vocabulary in a basic conversation type of smart. So he came up with an idea for our group project fairly quickly. He proposed that for our portrayal of satire, we would present racial bias within the interviewing process. I would be the black girl with an impressive resume that showed promise during her interview going up against him a white guy who was much less promising, and yet he would still be favored. I was a little jealous that I hadn't come up with the idea. Nonetheless, I was happy to be discussing it over a platter of spicy tacos with his thigh pressed up against mine. That's really good, I praised him. Where do you want to film? We could film at my place. He gave me a smile that was unlike all the other Lawrence smiles I've seen. This one seemed kind of shy. I took a mental snapshot so I could analyze it later. I think my mom's office is the most suitable for the interview background, he said. Later that day, I made sure to tell my dad I was going over to a girl's house to work on our project and gave him a fake name, Lauren. The first question my dad asked was where she lived. I'm not sure, I lied. I'm following her home after school, so I'll text you. My dad gave me a look. Is she white? I grimaced the moment he turned his back to me. Yes, she's white, I sighed, knowing exactly what was going to follow. My dad's expression hardened. Remember what I always tell you about white people. Some of them may seem nice, but they don't truly like black people. Be careful. I changed the topic, annoyed that he felt the need to warn me. I already knew that about white people. I knew it because at freshman orientation, I overheard Mary DePaulo say that she wanted to come to our school because she heard that it barely had any black people and was predominantly white. She always smiled at me in passing, even though we barely knew each other. All those smiles looked forced. Just like that, my dad's warning had invaded my thoughts because I was still thinking about the white people at my school as I ate dinner and as I drifted off to sleep. Not all white people were like Mary. This was a fact. I could name five white friends of mine that were genuinely nice and would never say anything like that. They would embarrass the hell out of Mary if they heard it themselves. They were a part of Black Student Union and were vocal about minority issues on their social media. I couldn't stop my mind from drifting to Amelia. 
We've been friends since freshman year until recently when she voiced her opinion on police brutality on Facebook. She said most Black people asked for that sort of violence because they weren't compliant. The ignorance and veiled racism shocked me so much that I thought someone hacked her account. It didn't align with the sweet and cool Amelia I knew, yet that was her revealed under a simple Facebook post. That Friday afternoon, we took an Uber to Lawrence's house and I found myself squirming at the prospect of finally hanging out with him somewhere private. Would we actually go straight to work or would we goof off first? Would his hand graze my hip bone or would he toy with my necklace and let his touch linger on my skin like he usually did? I couldn't tell if these subtle touches were him being a playful flirt, no more than I could tell if him buying me a whole bag of dark chocolate Milky Way last week was a friendly gesture. I was obsessed with that chocolate and they had discontinued them from our school store. I realized that thoughtful didn't always mean romantic, but I couldn't help but hope. As we neared Lawrence's house, I started obsessing over things like my outfit being appealing enough for Lawrence to make a move or even the potential of meeting his mom for the first time. And I couldn't help but wonder, would she like me? So what's your mom like? I picked up my chip nails so the question would appear casual. Lawrence offered up information about his mom with ease though, and I fueled him with questions until I learned some interesting facts about Kristen Louise Vale. She was a huge fan of mythology, but she felt dorky about it, so it was best to set up the topic and let her ease into the obsession. She was a terrible cook, but she could make mouth-watering lemon pie. Yuck. She was a conservative at heart. Yikes. And she hated discussing politics. She absolutely loved her job as a therapist. She only believed in open relationships because any other way was impractical. Lawrence's disapproval of his mom's dating life was clear. Right now, she's infatuated with a Russian guy who drinks a lot of vodka and a married surgeon who's way too young for her. Next month, I'll hear new names. Despite all the eye rolls and scowls, I could tell he was just concerned about his mother. It was adorable. As we made the walk across the limestone path, it was also clear that his family had money, and my suspicions were confirmed. There was a distasteful yellow and green color scheme going on, but his house was otherwise impressive. It had vinyl bay windows, the swing set and pull-out back, a double garage, a picket fence, and a colorful, well-kept garden. I couldn't help but compare it to my own. As an MTA worker and a paraprofessional for special education, my parents never touched the type of money that made this house affordable. Well, you're certainly living lavish. I teased Lawrence, and in response, I got one of those exasperated looks that made his cheeks puff. The moment we stepped inside, I noted right away that Miss Vale liked things colorful. I took in pale yellow walls adorned with Greek paintings, the baby blue suede couch with purple throw pillows, the polka dotted rugs, and the red and gold antiques scattered about. I only had two seconds to absorb the interesting setup when she appeared. When Miss Vale's gaze landed on me, I saw her smile falter for the quickest second. It almost felt like I'd imagined it. So this is the English partner, Francesca, right? Miss Vale gave me a handshake, similar to a businessman closing in on a deal. This rubbed me the wrong way. I didn't know if I wanted a hug or a kiss on the cheek, but a handshake felt weird. Then she said, I love your hair, by the way, followed by a gentle tug on a loose curl. I'm so used to seeing straight blonde hair. My face warmed when I finally caught on to her initial surprise from when she answered the door. But then, jealousy sprouted fast as I entertained the idea that Lawrence brought a bunch of blonde white girls over here. I stupidly wanted to be the first and only girl, no comparison possible. Really, Mom? Lawrence groaned. Don't be one of those people, please. His mother threw her hands up in surrender. What? Her hair looks nice, and it's different. I nodded my head. Thank you. I smiled through my discomfort, making sure to add teeth. I was staring at the female version of Lawrence, and it was both endearing and unnerving. They both had the blonde curly hair, bright green eyes, and very full lips. 
Just like him, she was tall and toned, and she wore an outfit that accented that. I was amazed that she had such defined abs and that she showed them off proudly in her yoga attire. I got the feeling she did that all the time. I somehow couldn't believe that Lawrence came out of her. So I don't want to be in the way or anything, but I just want to throw it out there that I made sandwich and cookies for you ducklings. Her smile was genuine as she spoke, but she gazed at me in a way that suggested she was still assessing me. I twisted my ring back and forth under the scrutiny. All right, mom, thanks. And without looking, I knew Lawrence was squinting his eyes the way he does when he's being sarcastic. I told you we would have eaten before we got here. Miss Vale leaned against the counter. Oh, you guys went on a little lunch date already? I knew she was teasing, but her voice had an odd ring to it. This made me stare at her more closely. Maybe I was overthinking it. Mom, give it a rest, please. Lawrence sucked his teeth and made a grab for my arm, but I didn't move an inch when he tugged. I was interested in watching them interact. Lawrence's annoyance at her teasing, but a part of me also felt the need to watch Miss Vale watch me. Larry, how come I never heard about this crush of yours? There was a strange look in her eye that diminished the playfulness of her smile, but I couldn't help but look towards Lawrence. The word crush made my heart race with excitement. I wanted to believe that his mother knew him so well that she could already tell he was crushing on me so early into our encounter, but it was far-fetched. It was probably harmless teasing. Lawrence threw his head back. You're being really embarrassing, Mom. Miss Vell snickered and nudged him with her elbow. Okay, I'll ease up for now. Come on, sit down and eat for two seconds before you head up to the office. She pulled out a chair and I found myself going towards it immediately, and not because the ham and cheese sandwiches enticed me. Lawrence shook his head and said, Francesca, if you're hungry, you can totally eat. But after we filmed some stuff, I wanted to take you to try this really good Mexican place not too far from here. He was practically whispering, which was silly because there was no way his mom would miss a word from where she stood. All right, all right, I get it. I'm ruining the vibes. She threw her hands up. You two really are a unique pair, though. It's refreshing. I wanted to ask her what that meant, what could possibly be unique about us or why we were automatically a pair, but she carried on. Oh, goodness, Francesca, I just love your fro, though. Miss Vale paused. That's what it's called, right? All that hair must be so much work to manage, isn't it? Uh, it actually is a lot of work. I shrugged, but my entire body was tense. I couldn't relax into the seat. It felt like she was a wide-eyed reporter shoving a microphone in my face as opposed to easy conversation. That's why I sometimes go for simple, low-maintenance hairstyles, like braids. Well, it's gorgeous. Hopefully, the little grandbabies you guys give me have hair more like Lawrence, though. She wiggled her eyebrows. I paused mid-chew. Somewhere between being seated and now, I had picked up a cookie. I didn't look her in the eye, but instead focused on her nude nails. A beautiful mental image of a mini-me and a mini-Lawrence came and went. I didn't want to consider the implication of her words. In my mind, I was denying the translation, but my body had already made it real because my hands were shaking. Lawrence let out a heavy sigh. Mom, stop all the crazy talk. First of all, we're just friends. I flinched at the enunciation. And our baby's hair would be nice regardless. Jesus! Now my stomach dropped. Whether Lawrence liked me or not, we were technically friends right now. It didn't mean that would always be our status. I let this fact stick because if I didn't, I'd die from heartbreak. Miss Vale scoffed. Well, obviously I know the baby's hair will look beautiful no matter what. She paused, looking stiff and defensive. But you know, I just meant your hair type would be easier to manage, that's all. Miss Vale's eyes found mine. I hope I haven't offended you, Francesca. She appeared flustered and actually sounded sorry. I picked up another cookie. 
No, not at all. I know what you meant. I smiled, but it took some effort. I wanted to believe that's what she meant. Very badly. The room fell silent. Lawrence had the same sort of impatient energy that was present when we'd wait in any sort of long line. It was clear he wanted to go to the office now. But I took small bites and waited. A part of me was curious to hear from Ms. Vale and see more of her. This meeting needed to end so smoothly that the last 60 seconds lost its relevance. She was Lawrence's mom. We had to be good. Eventually, Miss Vale slid a bottled water towards me and offered me a small smile. So, Francesca, are you in any clubs at school or anything like that? I felt my shoulders relax at the topic. Yes, I'm doing a few things. Cheerleading, Black Student Union, and debate club. She hummed. That makes sense. You seem like the advocate type. My brows furrowed at the observation. Although correct, the assumption was a little bold. And debate is perfect. Are you going into politics? You could say I'm pre-law. Usually, I love talking about my future plans, but I wasn't as excited as usual to go into detail about it. I was kind of afraid that someone would say the wrong thing. Miss Vale let out another hum. Debate is really good molding for law school. Oh, you must do so well. You have such a sophisticated speaking voice. It'll definitely make a girl like you stand out in a really good way. Warmth bled through her voice. Her genuine smile threw me off. It even reached her eyes. So my mind rejected the idea of an insult at first. But then I dwelled on it, one ill thought chasing another. A black girl is a girl like me. Yeah, thank you. I nodded slowly, struggling to swallow. Fingers crossed I get into Cornell. This was Lawrence's dream school, and nearly his entire family was Ivy League alumni. He was practically guaranteed to go there. I wasn't really hoping to get into Cornell in particular. I didn't know what possessed me to even say that. It left my mouth on its own accord. But apparently I needed to because Miss Vale's smile faltered the same way it did when I first walked through the door. My stomach tightened. Ivy Leagues are really tough, but you're a smart girl. Just keep up the hard work. Miss Vale leaned forward to give my shoulder a squeeze. Plus, there are those programs geared towards you guys now, bridging the gap and all. The fact that the system is so discriminatory to begin with is a shame. She shook her head, frowning a little, as if truly displeased. Just a few weeks ago, some guy commented under this black girl's college acceptance video and said that she owed it all to affirmative action. I was extremely annoyed. I felt insulted for her. Why did Miss Vale feel the need to bring up those programs when talking about my chances? It made me vibrate. I dug my nails into the palm of my hands as I searched her face. She seemed so nice about it, and this irritated me more. I hated that the insult was buried under a beaming smile and a warm voice with encouraging words. At least, the guy on Facebook was outwardly bitter and ignorant and even added an eye-rolled emoji. Lauren spoke up. There are no doubts, Mom, program or not. Cornell would be lucky to have her. He said it like it was a fact. Miss Phil chuckled softly, eyes bright with amusement. Oh, of course. Like I said, I know she's a very smart girl. She might as well have said, yeah, right, as if. Upstairs in the privacy of the office, I waited until my muscles loosened and my heart rate slowed to voice my thoughts. Your mom doesn't like me very much. Lawrence paused his video game to frown at me. Why do you say that? He shakes his head. She's kind of obnoxious to everyone if that's what you're worried about. I'm sorry about how forward she was. His eyes darted to the left and lingered. This was a telltale sign he was uncomfortable. I mulled over the word obnoxious and forward in my mind as explosions and gunshots chased the silence away. 
They were interesting adjectives, generous word choice. I wanted more from Lawrence about that encounter, so much more. But I could tell it would make things awkward and tense and things were only ever easygoing between us. I was scared to ruin something that hadn't even been born yet. So instead, I said, give me a controller. I want to play. Wow, what an ending. Yeah, what a story, right? I don't know about that, though, but thank you so much for sharing this piece with us today. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Getting right into it, throughout this piece, you were met with microaggression after microaggression. And we read each one and cringe knowing the exact connotations behind Miss Vale's words commenting on your hair, your chances on getting into Cornell, and so many other instances. She then says, the fact that the system is so discriminatory to begin with is a shame, not realizing the irony that she helps further that discriminatory system. Throughout the interaction, Lawrence seemingly wants to ignore that you are a black girl altogether and dismisses his mother as awkward with everyone. Can you talk about the difference in how these two characters interact with your race? And do you think they're that different at all? Um, I feel like on the surface level, it might seem like they're different, but if you really think about it, they're kind of the same because Lawrence, you know, like he had his moments where like he would try to defend it, but yet he didn't defend it like when it really mattered, like he didn't really talk about it when it mattered. Yeah. And so he was just as bad as his mother in that sense. But 16 year old me didn't view it that way because, you know, I had a crush on him. And, you know, like, although I was thinking about it, I kind of like, you know, I was worried about protecting our friendship. But, you know, the thing about racism and like not you know, not perpetuating it is to have these discussions and to be blunt about it, even if it makes you uncomfortable. And I think that's what Lawrence was avoiding. So he was kind of just as bad as his mother, you know? Right. Right. Because you even opened the door for him to say something to you as you guys were, you know, in private when you guys were upstairs and you were like, she doesn't like me very much, does she? And he was like, what do you mean? Like, like as if you didn't notice all of these very blatant attacks to who you were as a person, he just kind of brushed it to the side. And that very much so perpetuates all of this. The system that she's talking about, um, that she probably thinks she isn't part of, and that Lawrence probably thinks he isn't part of. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. This just made me think of something that I guess is really interesting because at the age of 16, what do we know? It's all about high school and friends. But, you know, years later, we come across stories like this. And it's like, there was these things hidden all around us that we didn't know before. So, okay, so before going to Lawrence's house, your father asks if the person you're working on the school project with is white. And when you respond, yes, he says, remember what I always tell you about white people. Some of them may be, seem nice, but they don't truly like black people. Be careful. And you note that you were annoyed that he felt the need to remind you because you knew. It foreshadows the experience you have at Lawrence's house. Did you speak to your father about this particular incident or others like it? Can you talk about the importance of understanding that conversations like this happen between Black children and their parents and why? Um, well, for starters, I definitely didn't tell him because, I don't know, I guess like I was a little embarrassed. Mm -hmm. Maybe like when I got older, I could have, but it's just like I experienced so many more things that like that kind of took like the back burner. But um, I kind of didn't feel like letting him have that I told you so moment, especially since I lied about um, yep. <laughs> the gender. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think that it's, you know, parents are always supposed to have like, you know, certain conversations with their children about like the real world and what they're going to face. But like, we know that like specifically in black families, there are certain conversations that may different, differ from other groups of people, kind of challenging conversations that you have to sit on and have with your child. And I think that, you know, um, 
kind of figure out like what age is the right age like what age does your child start to understand that because i was you know in my mind um when i was younger maybe like middle school beginning of high school like i thought of racism as like you know like outward outwardly hating you know one another group person like i never thought of it in the sense of like microaggressions but you know as i got older as i experienced more things like I, I realized that my dad having a warning as simple as that is something to to um to keep in mind, you know? Because at the time, it's kind of like eye roll. But I had already started noticing things, like what I was saying about the Facebook post, you know? So I think that that year, junior year, I think it was, is when, like, my perspective started to change. Like, I realized that, like, microaggressions, like, were a big thing in my life. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think a lot of us can relate to this. I mean, right now, sometimes memories come up from high school or like even middle school and things happen to us as kids. And it's you know, like, you think this happened and it's like, whoa, that wasn't right. You know, you and then as you get older, you learn more about racism, you see more about the current events that are taking place. And it's like the smallest things that could end up resulting in like huge things that can impact everyday life. Right. It's funny because when you're younger, you don't, it's like, you don't really have much to worry about. When you, but when you get older, you start to look at like past conversations that you had and you start to wish that you said something different or you did something different. So with that being said, sometimes in the writing and reviewing and recording process, there is so much analyzing of your life experiences that new things come up that you didn't realize in the moment. Did you learn anything new about yourself while writing this story or the editing process? And while writing this story, did any of your perceptions of race change? Um, I guess as I was writing and getting it out on paper and even like reading it over, like I cringe more and more, like just, just, I feel like I was like so boy crazy, like so blinded, so focused on, wrapped up in my crush on Lawrence that I was willing to brush that away. And we're not even, we didn't even stay friends for that long. So it was like, for mm. what? Like I was just so hopeful, you know? Um, but it's like, at the same time, I feel like that was kind of an eye opener. Like I'll admit that like in the beginning of high school, I kind of went through like this phase where I was like really, really obsessed with white guys in particular. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, like after that, that experience, that, that phase kind of came to an end, you know? Um, not right away, but like my perspective changed. Like all of it was building up, like the thing with um, Amanda making that comment. Yeah. And then um, I forgot her name at, or, at orientation saying she wanted to come here because it was a predominantly white school, you know, mm-hmm. like my experience, like my perspective was changing slowly over time, but it's like, I'm kind of like older me is kind of like, why didn't I know that sooner? You know, like I should have been more woke. That's kind of how I think of it, but maybe I'm being a little hard on 16 year old me. Yeah. I think so Because I think 16 year old us, will notice these things as you did and we'll kind of explain them away as oh but not this person definitely not this person because we want to be you know positive we want to be like yes but this person makes me feel the butterflies and Mm -hmm. butterflies outweigh anything we want those things um and it becomes later that we're like oh my goodness when we i think know more about the world that we're like you know, in, in the same way that you are right now, thinking, oh, my goodness, mm-hmm. was it worth it? We just want to be hopeful, I think, at the time. <laughs> yeah, but I also feel like, you know, it's not to, like, I, I don't think that these things are kind of, like, black and white. And, you know, he was also young, mm-hmm. you know, like, ignorance, you know, like, I feel like that's why it's important to have certain conversations. Like, I, I'd like to think that, like, he's not that same person because, you know, Sometimes it's like the person is nice, but they kind of don't know any better. His mother, I feel like at her big age, she should know better. But Lawrence was kind of like, I knew a lot of people that were kind of like sheltered. You know, there was just a lot they didn't know. But it's like when you reach a certain age, like you should be doing your research. Like it's not always like a black person's job to like point this out and explain it to you. So, you know, like I'd like to think that like 
he's not the same person that he was and people can change and people can learn and grow or whatnot. So same way I did. Mm-hmm. I think it can happen for somebody like Lawrence. I'm not saying mm-hmm. his mom is like a lost cause or anything, but right. it's kind but, of like, you, you know, know the right. effect that the effect that people have as they're learning, you know, it's like definitely a privilege to be the one who has to do the growing and it gets mm-hmm. that leniency too, you know? Cause sometimes mm-hmm. as people of color, we don't get that. Certainly not. Yeah. And you know, looking back, you could take off your rose colored glasses and have 2020 vision and are able to see the different aspects of your life in a new lens. But in that same vein, what are some things that you would like your listeners to know or take away from your story? Um, I don't know. Kind of just to pay attention to the things that people say like I feel like there's almost always like a subliminal message um I don't know that person that seems nice is not always like as nice as they seem you know like some I feel like the worst kind of um the worst kind of insults are like usually subtle you know and I feel like I don't know. I guess the takeaway is to like keep your eyes peeled. It was hard for me to have my eyes peeled because like I had a crush and I was kind of young, mm-hmm. but um, I don't know. Adding on to what you were saying, I mean, I think it's interesting that you point out that sometimes it's worse when, you know, they try to say subtle messages in a kind way because it just comes to show that these people feel comfortable enough to say these things in a kind manner. You know, so rather than being direct and just insulting, sometimes they just feel like they have privilege enough to just act kind while at the same time offending you at the same time without realizing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like if I weren't experiencing, like if I weren't noticing um, other instances of it, I might not have been as perceptive as to realize that like she was insulting me. Like, if I didn't know what I knew or, you know, read what I read, like, I would have just been like, okay, like, she's being genuine, you know, like, she's not trying to say anything. Sometimes people really just don't know any better. Like, um, oftentimes when people are, like, when a microaggression occurs, like, they're really not trying to be rude, Mm -hmm. but it's just the ignorance. And then other times it's just them, you know, being patronizing. And I mm-hmm. felt like Miss Vale was kind of like a little bit of both, honestly. Yeah. Because I, when I say she was being genuine, like she really was, like genuine smile, like she was a nice person. If I didn't, if I weren't having the conversation that we were having, I would not write her off as racist. But sometimes all it takes is that one conversation and you learn how somebody thinks. Right, right, right. Love to start with the phrase, no offense, not knowing that that has meaning behind it. If you think something's offensive, why would you say it in the first place? Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> offense taken. Right. If you have to say no offense. Mm-hmm. Or I'm not racist, but, you know, but. if you're already starting the line like that. You set the bar very low. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, to wrap up, Thank you so much, Francesca, for having this conversation with us, for sharing this story with us and, you know, letting us into this piece of, you know, your life. Um, Mm -hmm. This instance that kind of speaks a lot more than just this instance, you know. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you everyone that concludes our first episode of the fifth season someone like me we are all so excited to bring you new stories soon amplifying these younger voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear from you can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching life out loud podcast on itunes soundcloud or youtube we also have an instagram and Facebook if you want to get some behind-the-scenes action.
We like to thank everyone who helps make this possible, including our sound engineers and editors, our episode writers, our website developers, and everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. And to our audience, we hope you love these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon and good night. Bye. Good night. <laughs>